welcome podcast family and welcome back to another episode we have done it we are officially over the 10th episode and it may not be a big deal to you but i'm sitting here just so excited because i did it and it's working and people are sharing feedback and letting me know that the podcast is actually helping them and people are relating and people are enjoying it so i cannot thank you guys enough for the support the love all of you that have shared the podcast, all of you that follow me on social media, I just appreciate it so much more than you guys probably even realize. So thank you. Um, today's episode, I feel like should have been done in the first couple of episodes, um, but I wanted to spend today talking about anxiety. Um, some of the feedback that I've gotten doing this podcast is that you guys are really enjoying me talking about diagnoses. And honestly, not on my agenda. It wasn't initially going to talk specifically about diagnoses. Um, but over the last couple of weeks, I've gotten a lot of feedback saying that like you guys enjoy it. Um, and obviously I would rather have you get the information here or for me who deals with it daily or has gone to school or talks about it constantly. Um, than some of those that are just Googling or WebMDing or finding it on TikTok. So, Um, I really want to dive deep talking about anxiety, giving examples, and really just kind of normalizing it. And anxiety is sometimes a really hard diagnosis. I think that nowadays doctors, therapists, psychiatrists, people in the field kind of misdiagnose anxiety. Um, And I say that because generalized anxiety disorder can be very generalized. Um, A, there can be very many contributing factors to it or there can be mimicking symptoms to it, that for professionals, depending on their efforts in diagnosing or assessing you, um, it's either not talked about, it's not diagnosed correctly, or it's just generalized and it's kind of brushed off by many medical providers. I know I recently went to the doctor to have um, my hormone levels checked and I was talking to her about my anxiety. Um, And it was really interesting because maybe I went in arrogantly or kind of like a know-it-all, but I feel like as as one professional to another, if you're a medical doctor and you have another licensed professional coming in, that you would think I thought that they would trust my words and my self-diagnosis far more than anyone else. And it was a really interesting experience because I had gone in to talk about possibly getting like an as-needed anti-anxiety pill. We had expressed that my anxiety has been heightened lately and I've noticed certain triggers, I've noticed certain times of year, the whole shebang. And I validated myself in the sense that I knew she was going to ask me like, have I looked at diet? Do I drink a lot of caffeine? Am I seeing a therapist? So I went in like readily prepared to be like, this is what I need. This is what I've noticed. I've reflected a lot on this. I've thought about it. You know, is it something that you can give me like a prescription? I don't want it long-term. This is something short-term I want just to take the edge off in these situations. And I didn't feel like in that situation, I was really heard or listened to. And in a way I was kind of brushed off because her response was very hesitant. Um, She basically gave me the lecture about like SSRIs are addictive and you need to be careful with this. And as another professional, you should know the added risks and you should know the side effects and blah, 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 blah. And 
it was interesting because she spent more time assessing kind of like external factors for me, such as like, well, has work been hectic? Are you stressed in your relationship? You're planning a wedding, like all of these things. And I'm sitting here listening to her and trying to be compassionate for her that she's trying to do her job. But at the same time, I'm like, you're not asking any specific assessment questions on specifically anxiety. Like I understand, yes, people get stressed out, time of year triggers them, external factors matter, absolutely. But at the same time, I feel like in my case, like if a client comes in and yeah, I absolutely want to assess for external factors, but I also want to assess for actually anxiety factors. I want to get to know their anxiety and I want them to talk about it. So not once did she ask me if I was having panic attacks and what they were like. She didn't really ask anything really related to my anxiety and what it's like and have me describe it. She basically was just like, well, you seem stressed out and this is addiction forming and I don't feel comfortable doing it. I don't like doing it unless there's a real need for it and basically brushed me off. And it was really interesting because my first thought was, okay, I get that Utah especially is over-medicated and there are doctors that over-prescribe. Yet, I thought I was going in very prepared to talk about my anxiety. I'm very self-aware of what my triggers are, what my anxiety is. And, you know, my therapist, my personal therapist, listens to me. Um, She's really good about letting me sit with the emotion and getting to know the emotion and having me define it. But here I am in another professional's office that's from the Western side or from the physical side, and she wants to assess my external factors of life that contribute to my anxiety. And I just thought it was really interesting. I thought, you know, I, I left the office reflecting on my practice, my skills, my assessment, and just how she kind of filled that same stereotype that I find and talk to my clients a lot about in the fact that we don't talk about anxiety. We literally generalize it and we use it as this name that's so overused and overdiagnosed that we sometimes as even professionals don't know how to talk about because it's just another thing, right? And it's kind of, I feel like as professionals that it is because everyone experiences it, we forget that, hey, maybe this is like an epidemic or a pandemic of anxiety. Let's look at this. Let's understand it. How do we lessen it? People look at it as like, ugh, you're just anxious. Here you go. Here's a prescription. Just deal with it. Everyone's anxious. Move on with your life. And I think that this is something really interesting also for people that come into my office um, because I make people really think about their emotions. So for example, if clients come in and on their intake forms or if they sit in front of me and they're like, oh, I, I wanted to come to therapy. I'm really, really anxious. Usually some of my first questions is, awesome, what's your anxiety like for you? And I always give the example that they're usually they give me the answer of, uh, uh, I don't actually know. Or they tell me, you know what? It's really hard for me to explain. Usually my response to them is you lack the emotional intelligence to talk to me about your anxiety. And I don't say it rudely. That maybe came across really like blunt and rude. But what I mean by that is people also use and over self-diagnose. I'm anxious, but then when I ask, well, what does that mean for you? People have no idea. People don't know what anxiety is. People don't know what their personal anxiety is. And we don't know how to talk about it. So that's what this episode's about. Um, It's explaining anxiety. It's giving examples. And it's helping you to really understand, for those of you out there that experience anxiety, 
It's giving you a chance to learn and look internally and identify what your anxiety is really like. Okay, so when we talk from the kind of like clinical perspective or the textbook definition of anxiety, anxiety is what we feel when we're overly worried. We are afraid or nervous that something is going to happen. So particularly about things that are about to happen, that could happen, um, whether it's in this moment or in the future, right? So I always tell people when you when you're anxious, the worry and a lot of the presenting symptoms come from the fact that you're worried about something in the future, whether that's your reaction, um, something you said, a judgment, or really just like a basic human response that we can feel when our body and mind sense threat. Now, with this worry or the future worry, this comes from past experiences, right? So we presently feel these symptoms based on past experiences we've had that our body and mind have correlated to being a threat or to being scary or to being maybe just like a bad experience. So examples of this I can give are maybe that you feel super anxious to go to your best friend's birthday party because you're nervous how you're going to socially interact with them or you're going to say something stupid or you're going to look stupid or do something that everyone laughs at. Anxiety can be like test taking or going to school or presenting something. There are different versions of anxiety and if you pay close attention, you probably notice anxiety come up maybe pretty frequently like daily or sometimes it's infrequently depending on where you're at with your mental health or depending on what's going on with your external life or what's going on with your mental health and the internal triggers. So another way to look at anxiety is the fight, flight, freeze response, right? I always tell people when they want to understand more about the anxiety is that our brain and body are so cool in the sense that when your brain suspects that something is happening or there's an oncoming threat, it's going to take over before you even consciously are aware of it, right? And that can be, again, variety of things, whether it's um, like authority or if it's a fight with your friend or a social gathering. Um, you just being waking up anxious and being nervous about your day, maybe you're just stressed with life and you have a lot going on, that your anxiety is just naturally higher than it should be, right? So when we think about the fight, flight, or freeze response, think about it as our natural way of our brain and body taking control and wanting to protect ourselves from danger or feel that, or when we sense that threat, right? Um, there are certain hormones that our body releases in order for our brain and our body to react. So either this can be from like a brain's perspective that the the hormones jump in, puts that alarm off, sends your brain kind of into this crisis alert stage where it's just going to react. And so sometimes that can be a where like suppressed memories come up and you just react based on these experiences Or physically, it can be, for example, of where your brain and body react to where your heart races, you get sweaty, maybe some of you go into those panic attacks. Um, And usually, like the, the panic attacks or those fight or flight responses pass. And sometimes it can be shorter term, meaning like just a couple minutes, or it can be longer term of lasting, you know, 20, 30 minutes, if not more. Um, and the and the sad thing is like I have a lot of clients when I explain this to them that their reaction is like, well, I don't want that. I want to be in control of our mind. Um, and 
I get that. I hear that. You know, that's part of our control freaks that we all have that we want to be able to take control. And this is a bodily response that happens automatically, right? Unfortunately, again, your brain is so powerful because all the memories, all the associations, all these events we've been through throughout our lives are stored some neatly and some chaotically, but our brain is able to recognize the threat and respond, like I said, before we're even conscious of it at all. So sometimes we have this, these moments that come up that make you anxious and you, you panic or you go down that spiral, right? Maybe you've heard about it before of like you go down the rabbit hole or you go down this spiral of where this situation is coming up or the situation that you kind of have created in your head is going to happen and you panic with this fear-based response that a certain outcome, usually the worst case scenario, is going to happen, right? And so it can be, it feels really hard to be in control over that anxiety, especially, you know, after I just said, like, this is a natural response. It's something that your brain and body just naturally respond to. And although that's true, right, it, it's kind of a twofold answer. Yes, it, it's harder to control, but it's only really hard if you're not aware of what that anxiety is to you and maybe what some of your triggers are for that anxiety. And the second part of that is if you understand your anxiety, you understand your triggers, if you understand maybe where that anxiety is coming from or why certain threats are such a fear-based response for you, then you're able to be in control over it and figure out how to manage it better. I think the frustration that I run into a lot is that traditional kind of older types of therapies or therapists, um, there's this persona that we forgot that we have to talk about these things. And we definitely talk about things, and when I say things, we talk about the mental health diagnosis or the mental health field very differently than we ever have before. There are therapists that want to mend the trauma gap. There's therapists that now want to educate you on depression or anxiety or bipolar or whatever these diagnoses are Um, versus before, like when CBT was very, very popular and everyone was getting certified in CBT, which if you don't know what CBT is, it's cognitive behavioral therapy, Um, very standard traditional therapy where the goal of CBT is trying to change or replace um, behaviors right? Or thought patterns. So yeah, CBT works great if you understand logically, for example, like I want to stop smoking cigarettes. Cool. I know what it does to me. I know what my family thinks of this. I know what my consequences are if I smoke, but being able to actually replace it, right? Whereas now there are more conversations about you know, where, why, in this example, there are more conversations about why you started smoking or why the negative or unhealthy coping skill is present for you to cope with the anxiety or cope with whatever that threat is. So with this, in traditional approaches, I feel like some of the coping skills that are discussed in therapy are often of like, oh, you feel this way? Well, go outside and stand in the sunshine. Or if you feel this way, call a friend. Or if you feel this way, just ignore it and think something positive. And although, yes, like some of those mindfulness techniques and coping skills can be helpful, I look at it as it's a band-aid approach, right? If you're not looking and understanding your anxiety and what you're going through, and every time you're anxious, you're just avoiding and distracting, such as you're going to go take a bubble bath, you're going to call a friend to talk about anything than what you should be talking about, you're never really going to get to the root of the anxiety, right? You're never going to get to the root of that core issue. So 
when we talk, and I'll give examples in, in just a little bit, but that kind of gives you context on um, how you can better deal with your anxiety. A, if you understand it. A, if you identify what you're going through with it. Um, you know, part of this, if you learn how to define it better, then you're able to cope with it better, right? And that's something many of us don't know how to even identify because it hasn't been taught to us. I do want to say also, yes, anxiety is a basic emotion. So when you go to therapy or your doctors or you pull up like cute little emotion charts, yes, anxiety is listed on that. So the the goal of this is like, yes, I want to normalize anxiety, but also one thing I want to make very, very clear is yes, anxiety is a diagnosis that I can diagnose you or you can be diagnosed with, but that doesn't define you. I have so many clients that come in and they're like, well, I'm just anxious. My doctor said so. So that's just the way I am. No, A, it's an emotion and B, it can change, right? The emotions are going to change throughout the day. If we can get the anxiety so it's not as debilitating for you, then you're able to carry on doing regular activities or carrying on with life at a normal functioning level rather than feeling completely stuck or completely um, dysregulated in your normal life or certain activities such as school or chores or being in relationships or friendships or whatever that may be. Okay, so when you look at anxiety and you understand it from example, the clinical perspective. So when I use the diagnostic statistical manual, um, there are seven main kind of points that I'm looking for in assessing to diagnose you in this in this episode with generalized anxiety disorder okay let me preface that there are different versions or different types of anxiety that you can have so in today's episode primarily I'm focusing on just generalized anxiety disorder and so when when I'm looking at this as a mental health professional I'm looking for these main seven factors and those are restlessness feeling fatigued Um, excessive anxiety or worries, increased muscle soreness, impaired concentration, irritability, and then difficulty sleeping, okay? So obviously some of those probably you can relate into or you can notice that it goes into depression. It's similar to ADHD. It's similar to a trauma diagnosis, right? And so you can see when I was talking earlier about some of the symptoms can be in sync or very, very similar to other diagnoses, which also leads into being misdiagnosed, right? If maybe it's anxiety because of a trauma, the symptoms are going to be very, very similar, okay? So anxiety, to give you the best visual I can, right? If you picture someone, for example, in the emergency room, right? We, we've probably all been there for the majority of us in a scary, crisis, uncomfortable situation where your heart rate's increasing, maybe your bodily is, your body temperature is increased, you're feeling uncomfortable, you're tired, but yet you're worried and thinking about all the worst case scenarios. Maybe you're having headaches, stomach aches, neck aches, your body seems tight. You feel like you just can't sit down, that you're up and you're down and you're moving or you're tapping, um... And then part of that is like you feel like you can't finish thoughts. You can't finish sentences. You almost like ADHD, right? In the sense that like you're on this topic and then you switch topics and then you're here and then you're there. Um, Some of it also would be then it's going to affect your sleep, right? You go home for the night. Your mind can't shut off. You're feeling very worried or maybe everything hits you. And so you're struggling with sleeping. And then also the irritability piece comes into where maybe you're short-fused, 
or you're short with your kids or you find yourself being really snappy or angry at your partner. Obviously, those are just very like summarized versions of how anxiety kind of shows itself. And with generalized anxiety, the symptoms or the factors of these symptoms are super generalized, right? Restlessness can look very different per person. So this furthers my point to say when you identify anxiety, right, clinically, I just gave you the clinical diagnosis, right? Do you fit with any of those, right? Do you have any of these criteria that you fall within? Did you even know the criteria, right? Sometimes, again, we just use the word anxiety and have no freaking clue what they what it is. Um, so with this, let's say if you resonate with this a lot. Okay, you can recognize most of the symptoms. You're like, yeah, Rhonda, all of these I match with. Cool. The next stage of this I'm going to challenge you, look at this of what it is for you. Okay, do not compare yourself to your mom or your sibling or your partner or me or whoever, right? When you think about your anxiety, specifically, what are your worries? What is your concentration process? What does your irritability look like? What are those physical sensations that you can feel? You need to become very clear and define it for you. The thing about anxiety, the thing about any mental illness, it's going to look different per person. And I don't mean that as far as the criteria, right? But remember, as a diagnostic criteria, they're very generalized. It's very vague. There can be many definitions within that, which honestly, that's why my job is so hard, right? To ensure the correct diagnosis for you. But in order to ensure that, I have to know firsthand what it is for you, how you define it, what it's like for you. And some of you out there are like, I have no idea. I've never even looked at this. That's okay. But I'm going to encourage you that today, after hearing this podcast, you are going to sit with your anxiety and really try to understand it, what it is for you. See if you're able to recognize if your mind is spinning and you feel like it just never shuts off. And sometimes these thoughts are not going to be like conscious, logical thoughts that make sense. That's okay. I refer to anxiety sometimes as like a tornado right? If your mind feels so overwhelmed with these thoughts that it feels like a scattered tornado of events, that's okay. As much as you can, look at that and get it out of you and identify like what are your conscious worries? What are some that comes up consistently? Is there themes? Is it internal? Is it external? If you're able to recognize these patterns, then you're going to gain further understanding, really specific understanding of what your anxiety is, right? Um, when you look at the irritability or when you look at like that, that restlessness, what is it like for you? How are you restless? Right. Um, anxiety. I also look at like, for me, I'm what's called high functioning anxiety. Meaning if I get anxious, I, you know, I'm checking my emails, I'm running around the office, I'm doing a million things. And although some people are like, Oh, Rhonda is so productive. She's on it. Some of those days I know that if I sit down, I'm going to lose my mind right? And then there's other days to where my staff probably sees this the most just because I'm with them all day. But there's some days to where like my panic attacks get the best of me and I have like an emotional meltdown. So it can look different. But if you're aware of what these patterns are for you, especially again with the restlessness, you're able to better identify. Is this me being anxious? Is this me just being out of control? What, What is it for you? and define that, right? Because we all cope differently with these things. So again, understanding it for you, right? Um, Obviously, the impaired concentration will come also with that cognitive thought process. What is it like for you? How is it interfering with certain things? 
you probably see this most in school or finishing tasks or following through. Um, I always tell people, do not make a to-do list, right? Especially if you're a severely anxious person. Do not sit with a to-do list in front of you because A, life doesn't work that way. Your to-do list is never, ever, ever, ever going to go away. So when you're just looking at your to-do list, you feel like you can never catch up. Well, part of that is true, right? You're always going to have laundry to do. You're always going to have to run errands. You're always going to have to do certain things at work. So concentrate on like one or two intentions of your day. Prioritize them. If you need to get laundry done because you're running on your last outfit for the month and you haven't done it, awesome. Make that a priority, but don't put it on this long list of to-dos that you don't ever feel like you're going to make uh, make progress on, okay? Um, it's also going to have kind of like that cyclic backspin on the fact of how often do you look at that to-do list and you can't finish tasks. Looking at the to-do list makes you anxious and by looking at that um, list, it spirals out of control into like, oh, I'm a failure. I can't do anything. I'm never going to be good enough. What's the point in trying again? And so then you just go into that downward spiral, right? Um, another key point to anxiety is looking at the difficulty sleeping point, okay? Most of the time, people's anxiety is going to flood them more at night. Why? There's different theories on this. Um, my theory is that when you wake up in the morning, you don't really have time to be anxious, right? When you wake up at six, you have to go to the gym. You have to get the kids ready. You have to go to work. You have to do, you know, you have to do all your responsibilities in order for you to get out the door. And then you're at work or you're you're at school and you have kind of like that ongoing robotic mentality of where you just have to go, go, go. At night, you know, most of the time when there's less responsibilities, it's quieter, the kids are in bed, there's less stimulation, there's more of your mind and body to sit with it with yourself. I always tell people, and and I'm probably going to get backlash for this, but that was my favorite part of COVID. Okay, now I know there's a whole other conversation, but hear me out with that part. With COVID, when the shutdown happened, we all had to sit with ourselves, right? And most people, we became really uncomfortable. Why? Because we're not used to sitting with ourselves. We couldn't just make plans and we couldn't fill our schedules with certain things. There was so much more downtime for us to really look at what we're going through. And so that can be an example of what I'm talking about, like with sleep schedule. At night, you feel more relaxed. You feel more calm. There's less stimulation. There's less triggers. There's less pulls that that are pulling you in 10 different directions. Um, Oftentimes, people struggle like, I can't go to sleep for hours because my mind is racing. Yeah, because you're not distracted with work or phone calls or emails or texts or Facebook or TikTok. Well, I mean, I guess you can be, but in that regards, like you're not as distracted, right? Your brain isn't focusing on all of these other tasks you have to do. You have more space in your brain to be clouded with those worries or those fears. So when we look at this, some of the best advice I can give you with anxiety and managing it is A, recognize your triggers, recognize the patterns of your anxiety, define your anxiety, right? So I guess that's like a threefold. Trigger responses are going to be helpful. So if you know that maybe a certain employee increases your anxiety and you know that every single day you work with that employee, it's going to heighten your anxiety, be aware of that. Acknowledge it. Why? Because then if you know it's there, you know how to protect yourself better going into that situation. 
okay? The example I give with this is if I say, hey, let's pack for a vacation to Hawaii and you pack for a vacation like we're going to Alaska, your trip at Hawaii is going to be 10 times more miserable than it would be if we actually went to Alaska, right? So know your environment, prepare for your environment appropriately and don't be caught off guard, don't be naive right? In the case of that coworker, what are some of the ways that you can do? Maybe you talk to your boss. Maybe you put up a physical barrier. Maybe you wear things such as like a sweater or a blanket or something like that that you can kind of keep as that shield and then brush off or let go at the end of your day, okay? So get to know your triggers. Identify are there certain places or people that you recognize that anxiety is higher, If you're going through any type of trauma therapy and reprocessing right now, obviously you're going to be super sensitive, right? And so this is maybe like for a different conversation, but even that, right? When you, when you know your trigger is a trauma response and you're feeling more anxious or something of your processing has made you go into a panic attack, be aware of that, process it, sit with that, let all of those racing thoughts go. And I don't mean distract yourself. What I mean by that is anxiety is a physical disorder as well right? So it affects your nervous system. So part of this is move that energy, move those sensations and get rid of it. So whether that's going to the gym, whether it's coloring, whether it's doing a meditation, don't just ignore what's, what your body's going on or what your thought processes are doing. Pay attention to it and allow that to be released from your body or at least move throughout your body. If you're going to just let it settle, you're just going to let it, let it settle like stinky trash can that's been in your garbage for a month right? It's going to stink. It's going to rot. You're not doing anything to benefit you or your well-being with it. Second part of that is learn how to define it, okay? So don't just generalize it of, oh, I'm just anxious. Learn better words. If you want a really great resource for this, you can use, like I said earlier, some of these cute emotional charts that you'll see at your doctor's offices. There's a ton online. You literally can just Google or Pinterest it and you will see it. Um, The one that I really like using is if you Google an emotional wheel, you're going to see that most of them have like four to eight um, different colors or different emotions. And I really like that because it's primary, secondary, and tertiary emotions. And so for example, like if you're feeling anxious, I don't want to just hear the word anxious every single day because there's so many more emotions that you can use. The emotional wheel is going to help you pinpoint, cool, I'm feeling anxious. Awesome. What else am I feeling? Maybe the anxiety is coming that I feel fearful. Awesome. So I'm feeling anxious because I feel fearful. And then I can look at the tertiary side and identify another emotion. So I'm feeling anxious because I'm feeling fearful because I'm feeling maybe um, threatened, right? Um, The emotional wheel that I use at work, if I remember correctly, has seven or eight different emotions that are all different colors. And I, there are, I think, one or two positive emotions on this wheel. So you don't just have to do it with a negative. Um, but I really like this because, like I said, you're able to define and identify and expand that emotional intelligence on such a far greater level. And that's what I really want you to start adapting and learning as, as you learn about mental health and as you understand your mental health disorders that you're going through. Okay, next part that I want you to do is coping. Where do you feel it? Physically, what is it like for you and where do you feel it? As crazy as it sounds, our body does keep score of this. There's a great book. There's a great theorist. Some of you have probably read his book of The Body Keeps the Score. Okay. Bessel van der Kolk is an amazing author, is amazing presenter. He's an amazing therapist that talks about this. And he did write the book Body Keeps the Score. 
If you want a really good book to understand your trauma, understand what you're going through, I highly recommend it. I will preface that you probably will be triggered reading it, so just be prepared for that because it will relate to you and it doesn't matter who you are, where you are in therapy, where you are in life, you will relate to this book. Um, But understanding what it is for our body, okay? Again, anxiety is physical, so you're going to feel it in headaches, neck aches, back pain, stomach pains. Maybe you just have achy muscles. Um, body scans, which you can YouTube, talk to your therapist about. If you're, if you're experienced with this, you can do kind of like a self-regulated version of a body scan where you simply sit or lie down. It's a mindfulness practice where you identify where in your body are you uncomfortable? Where is it painful? Where are you holding that pressure or that heaviness of the anxiety? Okay. And what does this sensation feel like? Right? For example, when my clients come in and I do a body scan with them, they'll say, Rhonda, I'm feeling really anxious, right? I'll have them close their eyes, take a couple deep breaths, really tune in with their body, and I'll have them pretty much start from their toes and work the way up of where they feel it. Everyone's answer is going to be different. Yes, there are some similarities, such as like feeling like an elephant on my chest or feeling the neck pain feeling headaches. And that's okay. There's a lot of similarities, but you may notice your anxiety you're carrying differently. So maybe it's in your right arm. Maybe it's in your left foot. Wherever your body has chosen to keep that is where it's going to hold it. And again, you need to release that. So maybe you do like a meditation where you give that pain or discomfort a color and you release it, or you take an Epsom salt bath, or you do something like at the gym where you're focusing on that and you're stretching or you're moving that. Okay, so first you identify the emotion, you identify the triggers. Next, you're going to internalize of where you feel it in your body. Okay, the last thing I want you to focus on is once you've identified, once you've defined, once you've physically recognized where it is, go do something about it. Okay, this is the biggest takeaway that you're probably going to hear me in almost every single episode. Why the anxiety is there does not matter, right? Why is pointless. You don't need to know the why. Why do I say that? Because it's here. The emotion, the physical, the discomfort, the pain, the worry, the thoughts, the irritability, whatever is there is already here that you're dealing with in this present moment. It's not about figuring out why it's here as much as it, much as it is about you figuring out what you're going to do about it. And examples of this would be journaling, calling a friend, processing it, bilaterally stimulating, um, coloring, going to yoga, going to some energy work, taking an anxiety pill, eating right, whatever you need to do that way, do it. But do not sit there and try to figure out why. It does not matter, okay? I always tell my clients the one forbidden word in my office is why. So think about how often when you get triggered when the anxiety is there, You sit and you reflect and you're like, why am I experiencing this? Why is it me? Why is this anxiety here? Why do I have such a hard time with completing this? Why do I have such a hard time cleaning my house? Cool. In that moment, especially if you're verge of the panic attack, no one cares. The anxiety that you're feeling, the emotions that you're feeling is there. So don't quit asking why and figure out what you're going to do about it. A coping skill, going to therapy, going to physical therapy, getting a massage, whatever that action is, that is what I want you to focus on. Okay, so emotional identification, defining it specifically for you, not generalizing it, identifying what the physical sensations are for you, and then doing something about it. 
Okay. It sounds maybe more intense, but it's really a four-step process that should happen, that can happen. Maybe I shouldn't say should, that can happen in, you know, maybe like a five to seven minute window, or it can happen on a more intensive scale. It's very therapy, but I want you to think about that zero to 10 scale. You see it at the hospital or maybe your therapist uses it or you just use it in your own. That zero to 10 scale should be your own personal scale. Again, every anxiety or every mental health this, this diagnosis is going to look differently. So for my 10 may look very different from your 10 and that is okay. On your scale zero to 10, what, how does it feel? If 10 is the worst, where do you fall within that range? In this moment, if you were to sit and scale, where did you scale it? Zero to 10 right now, scale your anxiety. Let's say you're at a five or a six, okay? That five or a six means that you're center of the scale, meaning that you're kind of managing it, you're doing well with it, but you probably should do some type of intervention or do some type of coping skill to lessen it. So when you use this scale, use it for the intensity of your coping skill as well. Okay, so for example, if you get anxious and you're at a five or six, then you need to practice a coping skill that's equivalent to the intensity of your emotion. Okay, so a five or a six in my example with my clients, I would say that's probably where you could do like go on a walk with the dogs. You could probably talk to your partner about it. You probably could sit in your mindfulness coloring book and and color with it for five or ten minutes and probably feel okay. Maybe that five or six doesn't go to a zero, but it would lessen right? Um, Ideally, it goes down to a zero again. If it doesn't and it stays at that five or a six, that's okay. But the goal is, I all, the, the goal is, right, is that you're managing it, you're checking in with it, and you're doing something about it. If we go back and we treat our anxiety with just that fight, flight, or freeze response, then that's like you running a marathon and refusing to stop for water or to refuse to take two minutes and take some breaths, right? If I tell you to sprint to the top of the mountain and you do it, what's going to happen when you get to the top? You're going to panic. You're going to fail. You're probably going to pass out and you're going to feel awful. Don't let your scale get to the point where you're just reactive and then you have a meltdown, whether that's a panic attack or an emotional outburst or something that way before it's that reality check that you need to do something. You need to practice self-care. You need to call your therapist or whatever that's happening. So I encourage you to check in with yourself multiple times in the day, minimum three times. It shouldn't take you very long to wake up and say, where is my anxiety? Right now, it's like a two. Cool. Do you have to do something? No. Would you do something? A two on your anxiety scale should be equivalent to maybe you taking a a little bit longer of a shower and maybe you're taking a little bit warmer or colder than you're used to. Maybe you add essential oils in that morning shower just to relax and really start your day off nice. Okay, let's say if you do that, let's say if you take a shower and you, you know, you're able to get that anxiety at maybe at a one, right? Lessens a little bit. Cool. Lunchtime comes around. You're going to check in with yourself again. Where do you scale it? So you were at a two this morning, you lessened it to a one, you check in with yourself at lunch, and let's say the anxiety spikes for whatever reason to a five or a six, right? Again, I don't really care why because it's there, but you're able to reflect, okay, what happened? This is going to be part of your, your identity of what are my triggers? Maybe that coworker really pissed you off. And so she said something that really just like got under your skin and sent your anxiety a little bit of a spike, right? So that one went to a five or a six by noon. Cool, that would be an opportunity where I would say you need to remove yourself. Go outside, 
go sit in the grass, go listen to calming music in your car, go call your partner, do something to where you're going to get that energy and release it or leave it, right? So for example, like if you're outside, you could sit for like literally probably two minutes, practice some deep breathing, bring your anxiety levels down and release that energy by whatever you're going to do, right? And most of that is going to just be talking it through. Maybe you practice some mindfulness, whatever that step is for you. The point of this is if you're checking in with yourself, it gives you a good regulation of where you're at, right? So meaning like if you're sprinting to the top of the mountain, by checking in with yourself is like equivalent to you taking a glass of water. You're going to feel refreshed. You're going to maybe have more energy to keep going, right? Instead of just not checking in with yourself, avoiding, waking up anxious, getting triggered throughout your day, not paying attention to it, not checking in, not practicing coping skills, and by the end of your day, just having a full-blown meltdown where you're screaming at your kid, you're pissed off at your partner, you just want to go to bed, maybe you smoke your pack of cigarettes, you drink that bottle of wine, or whatever you're doing that maybe is unhealthy, and it's just your way of getting through the anxiety right? Checking in with yourself will give you a chance to really regulate the emotion, regulate the anxiety, and just practicing those day-to-day skills. A lot of the coping skills I encourage people to use are not like going to yoga class in the middle of your day. It's not writing a journal entry that's going to take you two hours to complete. It's really simple. It can be short. It can be, just as I said, spending an extra minute in the shower, splashing yourself with cold water, using fidget toys, using coloring books, calling a friend. I literally could give you a list of things to do that it's going to help regulate. Okay, so check in with yourself. Use coping skills that's equivalent to the scale of the intensity. Don't forget that. I think that's a really easy visual for you to use. Um, Again, you can use the emotional charts that you should be able to pull up online or again, maybe therapist or doctor can give you if you don't pull them up yourself. Um, the one that I recommend is going to be the emotional wheel. Um, you don't have to print it off. I always tell clients, take a screenshot of this on your phone because we, Lord knows we all are going to have our phones with us on always versus like a journal. I don't expect you to bring your journal everywhere, but I expect you to check in and really emotionally expand that language. And emotional wheel is the one that I highly, highly, highly suggest using. You can take a screenshot of it on your phone. So you always have it with you. You can print copies of it so you have one on the fridge or in your office or wherever you're going to put it. But overall, become familiar with your anxiety. I want you to know anxiety, yes, most people struggle with it. It is something normal. It's not something you have to live with. It's not a death sentence. It can be regulated. You can cope with it. You can go back to a functioning, able life without it becoming an interference or it's taking away your joy in life but you only can heal it if you can look at it do not avoid it do not distract from it and more than anything talk about it if you have kids if you have teenagers help them understand it like I'm helping you to understand it if you have partners that are going through stuff right now help them understand the anxiety help them identify the triggers identifying it and what they can do really to regulate it I realized that we only really like briefly touched on panic attacks today um, and I think I like very briefly just said the words. I didn't spend much time with it Um, but that is something I feel like I'm going to make in a separate episode because there's a lot of cool things that you can do in dealing with a panic attack and understanding it 
Um, so I know I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I was going to talk about it and maybe some of the different forms of anxiety, but obviously I went off on a tangent. I got super passionate about anxiety. So I'm going to leave today's episode with just the generalized anxiety and encouraging you to define it and practice these skills that we talked about. And I'm just going to come back to this because I think anxiety could be like a 10 part episode that we can spend so much time on. Um, I promise that I will talk about panic attacks and other coping skills. And if you want, if any of you are interested in specific episodes on other specific anxiety disorders or phobias or etc., please reach out to me and let me know. Okay. Your feedback honestly helps me kind of structure this podcast. Um, I've been saying it a lot the last week that sometimes I find myself repeating you know, with clients, this is my day-to-day job. So I repeat some of these topics over and over and over again. And when I sit down to do the podcast, I second guess myself and I sit here and I'm like, you have nothing to offer these people. Like no one's going to want to hear about anxiety or this or that. So if you have specific requests you want me to talk about, please reach out to me, send me an email, direct message me, whatever you need, because I really want to talk about the things that interest you or you have questions on. And, and of course, some of those taboo subject, taboo subjects that are not being talked about. So share feedback. Let me know if you have questions. I promise I will come back and do an anxiety part two where we talk about different anxiety disorders and where we spend more time dealing with panic attacks. So please look forward to that. Please continue to follow along. I love you all and I cannot thank you enough for all of this support. The last thing I'm going to leave you with is if you need to ever get a hold of me, if you want to share with friends or family, please do with this podcast. It's on Apple, Spotify, or Google. It can be found on those three platforms. Um, I also, if you want to follow me on Instagram, my Instagram name is at worthy with Rhonda. Rhonda does not have an H in it, but I would love your follows. I would love you to share stories, share posts. Again, contact me questions or any topics that you want me to address. I hope all of you are having a wonderful, happy, healthy day. And remember, check in with yourself. Remember you're capable, you are strong, you can do hard things. And more than anything, you are worthy of everything you deserve in this life. Do not forget that, friends. Thanks again for listening and we'll talk soon.